This time, the children ages three to six can be dismissed for Children's Church, and your teacher should be waiting for you there at the back. I invite you now to bow with me once more as we prepare to enter God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning once more for your word. As we have been reminded, it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. We thank you, Lord, that it is the power of life and death, and that through it, Lord, we receive the good news of salvation, the gospel, and that even more that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you speak to our hearts through it to stir, Lord, repentance and faith to respond to the gospel. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that once more we as your children would respond to your word, that by your spirit you would empower it. Speak through me, your servant. Grant me, Lord, the words to speak boldly as, as you would have me, Father, and that the words would be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, today we have come to the final installment of our series on sport, spiritual warfare, in part 11, which I've entitled, The Battleground of Prayer. A man named Sir George Adam Smith, he tells of a time that he and his mountaineering guide were climbing to the summit of Mount Weishorn, which soars to the height of some 14,783 feet above sea level in the Swiss Alps. Now, Sir George, he also recalls how as they made their final ascent up the mountain, it became quite stormy. And there looming ahead of them was the peak, and the conversation was had between he and his guide whether or not they should turn back. But they decided they were so close, the weather was manageable, and they were going to persevere right up to the summit. And so finally, as they approached the summit, Sir George was filled with exhilaration, However, it nearly cost him his life. For Sir George had forgotten all about the fierce wind that he would be fully exposed to once he crested to the very top of the summit. And so as he leaped up to the very top of Mount Weishorn, he was immediately struck by a powerful gust of wind which nearly blew him over the cliff's edge and some thousands of feet to the glacier below. In fact, it almost certainly would have knocked him right off the edge if it hadn't been for his guide right behind him, who had immediately reached out his hand, grabbed hold of him, and exclaimed, On your knees, sir! You are safe here only on your knees. Now, just as Sir George was only safe on the top of that mountain on his knees, so too it is only safe for us in this battleground of spiritual warfare that we have been looking at for these past several weeks. It is only safe for us on this battleground on our knees. On our knees. What do we mean by that? Well, it's been rightly said that the army of Christ advances marching on its knees. This is the only army that doesn't march on its feet. It marches on its knees because the principal weapon of the spiritual army of Christ is prayer. It's prayer. And so today we arrive at this final piece of our spiritual armor of God in Ephesians 6 and verse 18. We've been looking at this spiritual armor piece by piece over these past weeks, and we come now to the final one, which says this, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, 
and always keep on praying for all the saints. Now, if we have the slides, you could put those up for us here this morning. And I want to emphasize just a couple of things right out of the, the uh, beginning of looking at this verse. He says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And then he adds to be alert and again to always keep on praying for all the saints. So here we have this threefold emphasis on pray, pray, and pray some more. And, and don't just limit it to one type of prayer. There's all kinds of prayers, so use all of them. And he doesn't list what all of them are, but elsewhere in Scripture we know there's many types of prayers. There's, there's of course, prayers of thanksgiving, which we are always to bring first, right? We often come with our prayers of petition first, but we are to come with prayers of thanksgiving first, then prayers of petition where we ask God for things. Prayers of intercession where we intercede for others, which he alludes to about praying for all the saints. Those are prayers of intercession where we intercede for the needs of others and and there's many types of prayer but the important thing here that paul's getting at is not just the, the specific types of prayer but just the blanket of prayer pray all the time pray for all kinds of things and then when you're done praying pray some more and never quit now, as we come to this piece of the armor, one of the things I have to address is that many people don't consider this last piece of prayer to be part of the armor of God, because unlike the previous six pieces that we've looked at, Paul doesn't compare prayer to a specific piece of the soldier's equipment. Now, the others were all a parallel, right? The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, all of them were compared to a piece of equipment, and prayer is not. However, we must make no mistake that prayer is a weapon. In fact, in conjunction with the Word of God, again, the sword of the Spirit, here we have praying in the Spirit. When, when used in conjunction, this is in fact the most powerful weapon in the Christian's arsenal against Satan. There is no doubt that Paul considered prayer to be the final piece of putting on the full armor of God. There can be no question of this as we will see from the text itself. For if we go back to verse 13, in our passage in Ephesians, Paul says, Therefore put on the full armor of God. Not the partial armor of God, not most of the armor of God. He says, put on the full armor of God. And in the original Greek, the word that he used there for full armor is the word panoply. So we, we've even used that term panoply to... Uh, say, talking about something where there's a whole host of things, a panoply of things. However, the original definition of this word panoply is a complete set of armor. So this is the word that Paul used, panoply, a complete set of armor. Now, in the time that Paul was writing this, a Roman soldier's panoply of armor, a complete set, was always composed of seven elements, Interesting, right? Seven, the number of completion, a complete set of Romans, Roman soldiers' armor was seven pieces. Now, if you've been paying attention, we've looked at how many pieces so far? Six, right? So now we come to number seven, which is prayer. And so therefore, when Paul says this panoply of armor, the full set that we're to, we are to put on, he would have understood from his context it, it required seven things. We come now to the seventh thing, which is prayer. And so here we see that this 
is the one weapon, however, that Paul does not directly parallel with another piece of Roman equipment. He lets prayer stand alone. However, if we were to look at the context of a Roman soldier of Paul's day to say, well, what was that seventh piece of equipment that he would have had and been issued in his day? Well, if we have the the next slide, you'll see it. The seventh piece of standard equipment issued to every Roman soldier was his spear. And the spear was a multi-purpose weapon that could be used by the infantry for close combat, where they would have it in their hands to repel charges from sometimes mounted troops. They could use it as a phalanx with the shields and the spears in between for close combat. The spear could also be used uh, by mounted cavalry, and they would use it as a lance to have the point down before the horse as they charged through the ranks of the enemy. The spear could also, of course, be used by spearmen as they would reach back, as we see in this slide, to hurl them like a javelin towards the enemy as a long-range projectile, and this is where the Olympic sport of javelin throwing derives from, this, this very ancient technique of spear throwing. And so though Paul doesn't specifically mention the spear, it seems a fitting comparison that the seventh and final weapon of prayer that he says is the complete set, the panoply of the armor of God, that we could compare it to the spear of prayer. For prayer is truly a multi-purpose weapon. One that he again says is to be used all the time, every day. And there are all kinds of prayers that we've already talked about. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of seasons and situations of life. For every battle that we will face, there is prayer for it. And so as Paul said, pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Not some occasions, not just really bad occasions or really good occasions. All occasions. With all kinds of prayers. All kinds of requests. Then he says, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Again, always keep on praying. Not most of the time, but always. So take note again that for the soldier of Christ... Prayer is not an optional exercise, nor is it a passive exercise. Rather, we are commanded to always pray and also to remain alert in our prayers. So there's a vigilance involved in our daily prayers, to be alert and to keep on praying, to persevere in our prayers. Now, some of those prayers are going to be like long-range artillery. Here we see the, the soldiers hurling the spears through the air at a distant opponent. It's, it's long-range. And sometimes our prayers are like that. We, we pray for some, something or someone as sort of long-range, where we don't necessarily see directly where it lands. Sometimes we pray for people who are you know, missionaries in, in a distant land, and we can't be up close to see how God is using those prayers. They're long-range. Sometimes, however, those prayers are up close and personal. They're, they're hand-to-hand combat, things happening right in front of us, right in our face. And so there is prayer for up close, there is prayer for the, for the distant, and, and the, the thing that they all have in common is this. To pray in the Spirit means that we are submitting to the Spirit's leading and directing of that prayer. So once we launch that prayer... We are leaving it to the guidance system of the Holy Spirit to have it hit its mark. We are are not ultimately the ones in control of how God is going to use our prayers. Because remember, it's the Spirit who has to interpret our prayers. 
lining them with the will of God to have them hit their mark to do the task for which God would have them do. And so we trust that the spear of prayer, each one will hit its mark as we pray and submit these prayers to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. However, as we do this, we recognize, and I hope that you have recognized in your spiritual journey, that there is tremendous power in prayer. Tremendous power as we see it do its undeniable and irreplaceable work in the lives of God's children. And of course, we have countless examples of this power of prayer throughout the pages of Scripture. We could spend the whole rest of the year looking at examples of just where prayer had tremendous power in the pages of Scripture. So I'll give you just one example this morning. It comes from James 5, verse 16 and 17, which references an event in the Old Testament. But there in James, he says, The prayer of a righteous man has great power to prevail. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And so here James uses this example of Elijah's prayer way back dealing with a a pagan king and queen in a specific point in Israel's history. He was a man just like us, a man of faith. He prayed His prayer was guided by the Holy Spirit in line with God's will. That spear hit its mark. God answered that prayer, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And so James is making the point here that we pray in the same way. Elijah wasn't different from us, that he is just like us, and so just like Elijah, we too can pray. And that just as Elijah had victory and prevailed against King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, the prophets of Baal, and ultimately Satan, who was behind all of that evil, he prevailed by earnest prayer, James says. Earnest prayer. It is the same for us. We will prevail through earnest prayer in the Spirit. And so... Just as we see in this next slide, this man before us on his knees, there is no better place for each one of us to be than on our knees before God in prayer. That is the safest place to be on this battlefield, is before God in this posture. I've shared with you before in the past about how my grandfather, my grandpa Greening, I I would characterize him as a man of prayer. If I had to summarize his life, that is how I would summarize it, that Grandpa Greening was a man of prayer. And what part of that meant was that before any mealtime at Grandma and Grandpa's house, whatever delicious thing Grandma had prepared that we were salivating at, looking at right before us, it meant that we grandkids had to endure Grandpa's prayers before we could eat. And endure we did, because Grandpa was not going to take any shortcuts when it came to prayer. In fact, Those prayers could run five, six, seven minutes long sometimes and would invariably include every single person around the table to be prayed for by name. And so sometimes if that was a larger family event, that could be a lot of prayers for specific people by name, which quite often Grandpa would do. And so, of course, as a child, you you only want to eat. And so I'm not listening necessarily that closely, but as the years went by, the impression that Grandpa's prayers made on me, as I think back on them, it wasn't so much what Grandpa prayed, but it was how Grandpa prayed. 
because it was clear that when Grandpa prayed, he was not performing some empty ritual. It was not just something to check off the to-do list before we had a meal. It wasn't just tradition. For Grandpa, when he prayed, he was talking to his best friend. He was talking to God. There was no denying it. In fact, I remember in my teenage years wondering, is there really a God? And having it cross my mind, yeah, there must be, because Grandpa talked to him. It was a clear evidence to me of this relationship that he had in how he prayed. I later learned that this close relationship that he had with the Lord was not something that came overnight. Instead, it was forged through having to endure many trials throughout his life, many of which I only learned about much later on in my own life. And it was through those trials that he learned of God's faithfulness to not only hear his prayers, but that he anticipated God would answer them in wonderful ways. And so Grandpa was never shy about volley-firing all kinds of prayers and requests to God's throne of grace, which included some very specific requests. And one of which I learned many years later after his death, one of which ended up involving me. It's already four years ago now, back in 2018, and I had just finished leading a Bayside Chapel service. And I was shaking hands with the residents at the close, and I came up to Mrs. Klazowski, who has also since passed away. And as I shook hands with Mrs. Klazowski, she said to me in her usual cheerful way, she said, whenever I hear you preach, I think about your Grandpa Dave. And while that piqued my curiosity, and so I asked her, and why is that? And she replied, well, you probably know this, but when we were neighbors with your parents on Well Street, we would visit back and forth, and we would often spend time together in prayer. And so many times, your grandpa would pray, and he would ask God that one of his grandsons would become a preacher. And here you are. And that really hit me, because I didn't know that. He had never once prayed that prayer in my presence and to the knowledge of the rest of my family in their presence either. That was a private prayer, one that he shared with some close friends, and he wasn't going to influence by praying it in our presence. It was one that he lifted up to the Lord, that a grandson of his would become a preacher. And here I was. Long-range prayers. My grandpa passed away in 2005, and I learned this in 2018, many years later. He didn't even get to see me become a pastor. It was 2006 is when I officially began. But Grandpa had already been praying for this for many years. Long-range prayers. Sometimes we will pray prayers, persistent prayers, for a long time. And we may not actually live long enough to see them answered on this plane of existence. But I'm pretty sure that Grandpa on the other side got to see the answer to his prayers in wonderful ways that he could have never seen even had he lived longer here on this earth. For you see, this, this taught me something very important, that God remembers the prayers of his saints even long after they have died. God remembers the prayers of his saints. They are not forgotten. They are not wasted. So may we pray earnestly and may we pray continuously, praying specifically and praying expectantly. For it may well be that many of God's answers to your prayers and mine, we will only see from heaven. But when we do, we will marvel and then we will wonder. When we look back on our life, we will wonder, why didn't I pray more? 
Why didn't I pray longer? Why didn't I pray more specifically? Because God has been answering these prayers in such wonderful and such marvelous ways. For as 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 tells us, in relation to the spiritual battlefield that we are on today, the weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of this world. Instead, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And yes, that weapon of our warfare is prayer. And so the question is, how many of Satan's spiritual strongholds remain standing today in this world and in our lives solely because God's children have not been diligently using the spear of prayer? We've been trying to wage this warfare with with other weapons, with, with human weapons, rather than with the spiritual weapons we've been given, the principle of which being prayer. For you see, prayer is truly a mighty weapon with which we can prevail against even the most entrenched strongholds of darkness that you are facing currently in your life or will ever face. But now here's the catch. Satan, of course, knows this. Satan knows that that prayer is one of the greatest weapons that can ever be used against him. And so one of his principal schemes against us is this. He will do everything in his power to keep us from prayer. I've shared with you before from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, which is a fictional account, an imaginative account, of a senior demon named Screwtape who is writing letters to a novice demon named Wormwood. And he's explaining to him how to best tempt his patients, who are humans, and how to keep them from the enemy, who from their perspective is God. And not surprisingly, throughout this book, The Screwtape Letters, prayer is a major theme to which Screwtape often returns. And of it, he gives Wormwood this advice. Make no mistake, nephew. You have already badly blundered your assignment by allowing your man to become a Christian. Every move you make is now fraught with peril for your cause. This is nowhere truer than in the practice of prayer, where the enemy inexplicably and unfairly offers to meet with his pets. Each time that is allowed to happen, your danger multiplies. Diligently apply yourself to neutering his prayers in hopes that he will eventually find them tiresome and give up the whole undertaking. Now, though this is a fictional account, I think it hits the mark. Satan knows that, that prayers are powerful because they invoke the power of God against him. And so, as we see, he's going to do everything he can to limit the amount of fire he takes from the prayers of God's children. And so let me ask you a question. Have you ever noticed how there are moments in your life where you resolve to pray about something? That there is something you're like, you know what, I'm going to pray about that. Or perhaps even times where you told someone, I'm going to pray for you. But then something happened that distracts you. And you forget about it. And you just never get back around to it. Has that ever happened? Have you ever noticed That that's not just a one-time thing. It happens quite often where you're like, no, I'm going to pray about this. But then something happens, you get distracted, and you don't. Or have you ever noticed that there's times where you you do get to prayer, but then suddenly you get this feeling come upon you where it, it feels as though it's futile. 
And it's, uh, it's this sort of tedious chore, and I've prayed this prayer before, and nothing happened, and, and we sort of feel like I'm just going through the motions, and this, this feeling of futility comes over us that this prayer is not really going to change anything. You ever experienced that? Anyone? Am I the only one? i got two hands up, right? I'll put hands up for everyone. Okay, if you've ever noticed these things happen, let me tell you something. And let me just say, I don't want to oversimplify this because there can be a variety of reasons. But I am truly convinced one of the primary reasons these things happen to us is this. To pray is to engage in spiritual warfare. To pray is to enter the spiritual battleground which Satan is desperately trying to keep you from going into. As Hebrews 4 verse 16 tells us, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So you see, Satan knows this, that when we are on our knees before God's throne of grace, we are at the place of ultimate power and authority and help and grace and mercy and everything that God can give us to help us in our time of need, to help us in the throes of battle against Satan and against the enemy. And so he's going to do everything he can to distract us from from going to prayer in the first place or that when we do to try to make us feel as though it's futile and to just get it over with already because it's not going to change anything. All of these things are ploys and schemes of Satan to try to keep us from using the spirit of prayer to tear down those strongholds that he is seeking to establish in our lives and in this world. Of this, Samuel Chaddock writes, The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. He trembles when we pray. Now, much of the time, we will not be directly aware of Satan or the demon's presence because their current overarching strategy, as we've looked at in previous sermons in this series, Satan's overarching strategy in our secular Western culture is to not alert us by keeping a low profile so that people will remain mostly oblivious to their presence. And if we don't believe in Satan and we're mostly oblivious to his presence and the presence of the demons, then they can cause a whole lot of trouble from the shadows. Because if no one's looking for them, then then they have a free hand, more or less, to, to ambush and to work in this world and in our lives. And so this is his overarching scheme in our culture today, though we see that that is beginning to shift. However, this does not mean that demons are not around us, or that we won't ever have to face their dark powers in a more direct or confrontational way. And the reason we can say that emphatically without any doubt is that we see our Lord Jesus again and again throughout his earthly ministry coming in direct confrontation with the dark powers of Satan and the demons who have taken possession of people and are afflicting and tormenting them. We see him using his authority again and again to cast out and to drive out these demons everywhere he went. We also see that Jesus gave his disciples the authority in his name to do the same thing as we read in Luke chapter 9 and verse 1. There we read when Jesus had called the twelve together, 
He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons. Then in Luke chapter 10 and verse 1, we read that he sent out 72 other disciples with the same authority. And then later in Luke 10, verses 17 to 19, we read, The 72 returned rejoicing and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Jesus replied, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Now that is pretty heady stuff, isn't it? It's pretty heady stuff to be given the authority in Jesus' mighty name to not only resist demons so that we can take our stand and not be overcome, but to actually be given the authority to cause them to be the ones to run and to hide and to go running. And so those 72 come back rejoicing. They're blown away that they've been given this authority and that, yes, the demons had to obey the authority of Jesus' name. But lest those disciples would let this authority go to their heads in pride, Jesus grounds them. And he continues in verse 20 to say, However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So again, the most important thing is not earthly authority over Satan, but rather that our souls have been saved and that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is the big picture. That is the most important thing. But the fact remains that Satan and his dark forces are real. They are not just a spiritual allegory. They are real beings. They really exist in time and place. And yes, they can come against us and our loved ones in our lives. And there may come a time where you must confront them directly. And so I want to be crystal clear about this. Your only authority... Your only authority, your only power over Satan and the demons is in rebuking them and telling them to leave in the name of Jesus Christ. That is the authority we have and the only authority. We have been given in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, that they must depart. That is the authority we have been given. However, there is one vital precondition that must be met before anyone can successfully invoke the mighty power of Jesus' name against the forces of darkness. And that precondition is that you must already be a spirit-filled, born-again follower of Jesus Christ. That must be what comes first. In Acts 19, verses 11 and 12, we read about Paul's ministry in the province of Asia and that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, including the casting out of many evil spirits from people. And this is happening all over the place to such an extent that the word is spreading. Well, then in Acts 19, verses 13 to 16, which Eric read for us earlier, we read here this very interesting account of how some wannabe exorcists, this group of Jewish priests who went by the name the Seven Sons of Sceva, while they heard about what Paul was doing, obviously they were probably a little bit jealous of his power and the fame and the notoriety he was gaining by, by casting out these demons, and so they tried doing the same thing. And we read that they went around saying to demon-possessed people, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. But then in verse 15, we read this. One day the evil spirit answered them, 
Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped upon them and overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. What a picture. Now, what I find interesting is when the demon said, Jesus I know, Jesus I know, the Greek word for know that is used here implies a deep and intimate knowledge. This is not a casual knowledge. This is a deep knowledge. The demon says, Jesus, I know deeply. How could that be? Well, of course, when we put the whole of Scripture together and we think back on our series, what we've learned about the demons, that they, of course, are fallen angels who are created in the very presence of Jesus, at the throne of God. They knew Jesus from heaven in all of his glory. And so before they followed Lucifer in his rebellion against God, They had deep knowledge of Jesus. And so when the demon said, Jesus, I know, he wasn't just making that up. He had deep knowledge of who Jesus truly is. But then he proceeds to say, and I know of Paul. The Greek word used there for know that that he uses is a different word, which means casual knowledge. And that's how this translation has it. I know of him. It's kind of like when someone says, do you know so-and-so? And And you would say, well, I don't really know him, but I know who he is, or I know of him. I know his name. But you don't really know them in a personal way. That's what this demon is saying of Paul. So undoubtedly, what this demon knew about Paul was he had heard that by the power of Jesus, he had been sending his fellow demons running. But then we come to the almost laughable part when he turns to the seven sons of Sceva and he says, but who are you? Who are you? And it's mocking. He is, he is showing they are powerless before him. They have no authority before him. Who are you to be invoking these powerful names? And he then pounces on them. He proceeds to lay such a beating that they barely escape with their lives. When it says naked and bleeding, can you imagine? He's, he's shredding the clothes right off their backs. They are not in good shape as they escape with just their lives. And so you see that demon rightly saw those Jewish priests for the spiritual frauds and phonies that they were. They were not spirit-filled, born-again followers of Christ. Sure, they knew his name. They knew enough to invoke his name. But they had no right or authority to use his name. And so the demon called their bluff. And so receive this as a vital reminder that if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ to save you, That is where you must begin. Heed the words of Jesus and don't worry about whether or not the demons submit to you. The most important thing is this. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Is your name written in heaven? Are you a born-again, spirit-filled follower of Christ? That is the most important thing. For it is then and only then that we can, like Jesus, like his disciples, like Paul, prevail against all the powers of the evil one in the mighty name of Jesus. Now, for the majority of us listening here today, this sort of sensational spiritual warfare that we've just been talking about is mostly foreign to our experience. Now, of course, we believe that it's true, and it's thrilling to hear stories like this and thrilling to hear some missionary stories of spiritual warfare that we often hear from the mission field, but 
It often seems far removed from our personal experiences here in Canada. However, that doesn't mean, again, that demons are not around us as well. As some of you know, I've encountered some very real spiritual warfare in my life and in my ministry. On one such occasion, it was quite a few years ago, uh, I was working as, I think at the time, I was a program director at TNBC. And there was this eight-year-old boy, a First Nations boy, who it soon became very clear was afflicted, if not outright possessed, by an evil spirit. For though when you would meet him, he appeared to be a sweet and shy boy, uh, very unassuming, when he was provoked and became angry, he would fly into such a rage that this very short, small boy who probably didn't weigh over 70 pounds was flipping bunks in a cabin. And later on, he, it, it took four grown men to subdue him who he almost overpowered. Things that should not be physically, humanly possible for an eight-year-old boy to do. And the clincher was when I began to pray over him in Jesus' name, he began to growl and spit at me. And then in this deep, guttural voice, he said to me, my father is going to, followed by some of the most horrific things that you could ever imagine being said, let alone coming out of the mouth of an eight-year-old boy. And so, praise the Lord, this evil spirit quickly left. And then this boy was left weeping and shivering in a, in a little puddle on the ground. And my heart just ached for this boy. And, and uh, you know, he had to go home the next morning, and I don't know whatever became of him after that. But I was face to face with something very real and very evil that was afflicting this child. And the name of Jesus brought it right to the surface. Then a few years ago, I was called upon to assist in a situation with a teenager. And this involved direct demonic manifestations happening where he was in fact seeing dark shadows stalking him almost everywhere he went. And so without getting into more particulars... One person who was directly involved with what was going on said to me, up until now, I have just lived in ordinary life. I don't know anything about this supernatural stuff. And so I replied, well, that's the thing. We don't think about supernatural or the spiritual realm as being a part of our real life. We don't think about it until it confronts us directly. But whether we are aware of it or not, the spiritual battle is all around us, all the time. And so, if you are ever directly confronted or become aware of a demonic presence, have confidence to know that if you are a spirit-filled, born-again follower of Christ, you have been given the authority in Jesus' mighty name to command them to leave, and they must. And I know some of you have heard my story about this before, but I'll share it once more because we all need to know how vitally important the power of Jesus' name is. It was when I was 16 and I just complete, completed my first summer working as a cabin leader at Turtle Mountain. God was working my life. I was excited to keep serving him. And at the end of the summer, there was this staff wind-up and uh, we were all at the uh, farm of one of the other cabin leaders near Crystal City. And I vividly recall that we had stayed up way too late that night, which was typical. Some were pulling all-nighters, but I had finally gone to bed around 4 a.m. And then I had this dream. And in the dream, the evening sun was shining on the farmyard, and I was playing a game of kick the can, and I was up on top of this large bale stack that was on the farmyard. 
everything was peaceful, everything was calm, nothing remarkable was happening, when suddenly this feeling of sheer terror swept over me. And I felt this presence of evil. Don't know how to describe it. I just know that it was real. It was, it was terrifying and it was directly behind me. The hair was standing up on the back of my neck. And I knew that when I turned around, I would be confronted by evil itself. And as I turned, in my dream, I saw Satan standing there. And, and to see Satan standing there, again, the image in my mind in this dream was of the hideous Apollyon from the book Pilgrim's Progress. I remember it vividly from a depiction of it that I read as a child. And, and that's who I saw standing there. And I was frozen by fear. I was completely terrified. And he spoke to me, and his challenge was a mocking question. So you think you're going to serve God? Look at you. You're pathetic. You're no match for me. And I couldn't reply because I knew he was right. But then suddenly, out of nowhere, I was surprised to hear myself saying the words. I, I don't even remember forming them in my mind. They were suddenly being spoken out of my mouth. And I heard myself say the words, In the name of Jesus Christ, leave me alone. And then Satan got this expression on his face like, How did you know to say that? And then suddenly, I felt this incredible boldness surge up within me. And at the top of my lungs, I bellowed. I mean, I shouted, in the name of Jesus, leave. And just like that, Satan turned. He hopped off the bales. Poof, he was gone. And I immediately woke up. I was drenched in sweat. I even looked around the room to see if I had woken up the other guys who were sleeping around me because I was certain that I had shouted this out loud. But whether I had or I, or I hadn't, I don't know, because none of them awoke. But one thing I know for certain is that I had no previous training to do what I had done in that dream. I don't recall anyone ever telling me to rebuke Satan in the name of Jesus. In fact, in, in the dream itself, I didn't have that thought form in my mind. It suddenly was spoken out of my mouth. And I know, I'm convinced, that it was the Holy Spirit himself within me who prompted me to use the mighty name of Jesus against the enemy. And as James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and poof, he will flee from you. And I experienced that in a very vivid way in that dream all those years ago. And so as we conclude, I want you to know that this power is yours as well. In Christ, in the Spirit, you have the power of Jesus' name. And so remember, do not resist him on your own or in your own power, but in God's power and in the name of Christ. For when you do resist, even Satan himself has to flee. He must. So as soldiers of Christ, may we each commit ourselves to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. For remember, on this spiritual battleground, we are safe only on our knees. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give all praise, honor, and glory to your mighty name. The name which is above every other name, the only name given above heaven or on earth by which we must be saved. 
and that it is by your mighty name that those demons who, yes, they know you, they were created to give you glory in your presence until they too rebelled along with Satan, that, Lord, they even now must submit to the mighty power of your name. And that, Lord, you have given that authority and that power to your children, to all those to whom you have given your spirit, who have been born again through faith in you. Lord, it is, it is humbling to know that you have given such authority and power to us. But, Lord, it is your power. And so we don't rejoice in this power. Instead, we rejoice that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. For, Lord, that, that is truly the greatest thing and the greatest thing for which we battle in our lives and in the lives of others, Lord, that others could come to salvation, that the strongholds of Satan in their lives could be demolished and that they too could come to saving faith, to be born again and born in the Spirit, to become children of God, that they too could have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so, Father, may we be constant in prayer, diligent to lift up and to intercede for those who have yet to see the light, that they too could come to see you in faith and be saved. And so, Father, to this we commit ourselves, and we commit ourselves, Lord, to using this spear of prayer, this mighty weapon you have given us, to use it early and often throughout the day, and even as we go. We thank you for it, and we bless you once more in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.